stand as you're able for the reading of scripture. The first scripture comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went out of, from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Then the last scripture is from Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came from Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Azera of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's words. You may be seated. Why write a book on Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century, particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history. And as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since, and that is, what is the Bible, and what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible, and what do we do with it? And Genesis was a great place to start. That's Jared Bias. He's going to be here next week. Do you feel like time's kind of getting away from you sometimes? Like we're ahead of the June now, like we're, on, we're looking at the downside of May. So Jared's going to be uh, here live and in person um, next Sunday. And Jared is the co-author of this book that we've been studying. About 20 of us have been meeting on Wednesdays studying this book called Genesis for Normal People, uh, written by Jared Bias and Pete Enns. And um, so Jared, one of the co-authors, is going to be here uh, to talk about why he wrote the book uh, next Sunday. And um, uh, the questions that he alludes to in this video are really the questions when it comes to anything about figuring out the Bible and, and how to interpret it and what does it mean and all the controversial issues in, in Christianity in America, uh, all the things that get all the, you know, the loud voices shouting back and forth uh, on, on cable news, really those questions are, are what it all boils down to. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? What is the Bible and how do we interpret it? And that's what we're doing in this series and that's what Jared's going to be talking about uh, next week. And again, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We had somebody uh, who actually flew in. A daughter flew in from New York to surprise her mom here this morning. She walked in the door, and her mom saw her there. And you're setting the bar pretty high for Mother's Day gifts. I just want you to know that. But uh, can we, uh, it's Lisa and her daughter there. Can we give them a hand? Welcome, welcome. And uh, that was an amazing gift. And um, today, uh, we also want to honor all ladies a few years ago, uh, a lady uh, who I really respect, who uh, was, a, was a leader in academia, actually part of the seminary uh, where I, I got my master's, uh, she shared with me what it was like to struggle with infertility and, and be a, a weekly churchgoer. And she said Mother's Day was always hard, but she would go to church and it just made it that much harder. And as she shared her experience with me, I, I realized she's not alone. And so I thought, you know what, what if, of course we're going to honor moms, of course, but what if we also just expanded that 
to honor all ladies, all women, all girls uh, in our lives. And so ever since, we've been having a Woman's Day uh, on, on Mother's Day as well. So we want to honor moms, and we also want to honor all ladies. And ladies, when you go out today, all women and girls, we have a little gift we'd like to give you uh, as you uh, as you exit. So make sure you you grab one or two of those, uh, those flowers on the way out. Um, when uh, Jackie read the scripture, and by the way, when there are hard words to pronounce, I always call on Jackie. Thank you for that. When Jackie read the scripture, um, we realize as we read this, this uh, story of Sarah and her husband Abraham, or Abram and Sarai, before God changed their names. When we read this story, do you get the sense that you're stepping into a foreign world? Do you get that sense when you read these, these scriptures? You, names that sound unfamiliar. And notice it says, they, it says they took their possessions and their people, their people. What does that mean exactly? Like servants. And, and we're, we're stepping into a world that is different than our world. And uh, a lot of people who are raised in church are, are given this view of the Bible. It starts as children, which is a good thing. The children, we, we teach our children Bible stories. And of course, they just they see the surface meaning of the story. So, for example, Noah and the flood. You know, little children you know, get the, the cute boat with the animals all hanging off of the boat, which this actually is a horrific story where millions of people or however many people that will lose their lives. It's this, it's this chaotic drowning of the entire human race as it's presented in the scripture. And then we make it like a little bedroom lamp or something that they, that they, put, they put on their bookshelf. And that's just, that's how we teach kids. Because that's what they're capable of understanding, and it's a way for them to learn Bible stories. But a lot of times what happens is, as we grow up, there's never any progression beyond that, and it's largely a fault of churches, of people like me, of pastors. And so we get a child's view of the Bible. Childlike faith can be a a great thing, as, as, as the Bible says, but we get a child's view of the Bible, child's thinking of the Bible, and a lot of us are never really given anything beyond that. Do you feel that tension in your life? And so we get to, you know, right around 16, 17, 18, and maybe go to college, and and you have all these questions that your church has not prepared you to answer. And and then, of course, there are a lot of emotions around these different views of the Bible. What does it mean? And, And our church's interpretation versus those, you know, those churches' interpretation. And it's just like this landmine. It's a field of, you know, full of landmines walking through and trying not to step in something. And, and um, sometimes it feels like that when we read these verses. And, and this story is, is the same. So we're stepping into what Pete and Jared call an ancient story. And we're trying to figure out that if the Bible can be some kind of a guide for our lives, then how? When there are so many things that we don't understand and questions that we have. And it's foreign to us. And, and some of it, let's just be honest, seems primitive and it belong, like it belongs to another time, how can it be a guide for our lives? Well, last week we mentioned Rachel Held Evans, who was an author that uh, many of us were probably influenced by. And, and um, one of her uh, many books that was great was one of her first ones. It was called The Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master. Now, Why? Why did she do that? What she was doing in this book is just reading the Bible and then doing what it tells women to do. How many of you realize that? And just calling her husband master. Eh, the ladies are like, eh, I don't think I'm willing to um, take the Bible quite that far. So she, she found herself in this project of taking the Bible as literally as possible. And I love even the back cover says, strong-willed and independent, Rachel Held Evans couldn't sew a button on a blouse before she embarked on a radical life experiment, a year of biblical womanhood. Intrigued by the traditionalist resurgence that led many of her friends to abandon their careers to assume traditional gender roles in the home, Evans decides to try it for herself, vowing to take all of the Bible's instructions for women as literally as possible for a year. Evans learns the hard way that her quest for biblical womanhood requires more than a gentle and quiet spirit, from 1 Peter 3, 4, It means growing out her hair, making her own clothes, covering her head, obeying her husband, rising before dawn, abstaining from gossip, remaining silent in church, and even camping out in the front yard during her period. And no no amens there. With just the right mixture of humor and insight, 
compassion and incredulity. Uh, you're a biblical woman who is an exercise in scriptural exploration and spiritual contemplation. What does God truly expect of women? And is there really a prescription for biblical womanhood? Come along with Evans as she looks for answers in the rich heritage of biblical heroines, models of grace, and all-around women of valor. And so this was one of her first projects. It's, it's hilarious, and it's absolutely amazing. If you find yourself a culturally aware, intelligent, thinking person in the developed world in the 21st century, and when you read the Bible, it, it feels like stepping into a foreign world, because it is, something like this would be super helpful to you. I, I, I highly recommend it. A year of biblical womanhood. Now, why... Why did she find herself camping out in her tent during, during uh, that time? Well, Leviticus 15 says, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Aren't you glad you came to Women's Day today? Isn't this encouraging? Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Any, anyone who touches her bed will be unclean, and you get the idea. And so what she did was she took around a stadium cushion seat, to everywhere that she went, like she had to go to a wedding and she took a stadium seat and she sat on the chair and she said it was awkward because people wanted to shake her hand or hug her at the wedding. And she, I'm unclean right now. You can't, you can't shake my hand. You can't hug me. And so she went through the entire year conducting this experiment. She slept in a tent in her yard so she wouldn't make anything in the house unclean. And Proverbs 21.9 says, better to live on a corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. How's that for women's liberation right there? So every time she felt like she was being quarrelsome to her husband Dan, she put a coin in a jar. If she felt like she was being quarrelsome to him, she put a coin in a jar and she collected all this money. And then she sat out on the roof, I think, for like an hour and a half to express her penance for being a quarrelsome woman. Now, just so you understand, because we're in church and I'm a dude, and you may not quite know exactly where I'm coming from, no, I don't think women are unclean. I don't think women should be sitting on a roof showing their, pens, their penance for being quarrelsome to their husbands. I don't think that they should avoid touching people at weddings. Why is she doing this? Again, it was a, a funny look at what it, what it looks like to take the Bible so literally um, that, uh, that uh, we do everything that we think it says and how foreign it is to us. And it was also a way of saying to those uh, folks in our country, and it's, it is largely America, where this level of biblical literalism kind of reigns supreme, that there are lots of folks who claim that they you know, believe the Bible and they do everything it says, and she's exposing, obviously, they don't. And there are some really loud voices in the media, sometimes shouting hateful things, because they, they practice what a lot of people call selective literalism where they, they take some parts of the Bible and they want to take that literally. And then Rachel said one time, everybody's a biblical literalist until somebody brings up gluttony. And not so much. And so there's this thing called selective literalism. And I think, you know, especially from books like this, but anybody who wants to read the Bible thoughtfully, you get the idea that for people who claim that they always follow the Bible literally and everything it says, the Bible says that I believe it and that settles it and it's just that simple and I just do whatever the Bible says, they're just not reading some parts of it. And so Rachel uh, has made this incredible contribution and we lost her last week and she left behind two, two children, almost one and three years old, who now will spend today without their mother. And we're praying for them and her husband, Dan. But she left us an enormous gift. And one of the things, one of the greatest things she left was her approach was never mean-spirited. She wasn't making fun of the Bible, which we're going to see at the end of the sermon. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from her book and see where she lands on this. She wasn't drawing battle lines with people who disagree with her. In fact, when she passed away, Russell Moore, who's one of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, who always found himself squaring off with Rachel online, she was challenging views that, that, he, that he holds. He actually tweeted a couple of times about her and her family, how much he appreciated her and, and promoting their GoFundMe account for her medical bills. Probably the greatest testament you could, uh, you could give to her life was somebody who was her adversary, quote-unquote, really admired her and honored her in her death. And so um, today as we, as we read about uh, Abram and Sarah, we approach the Bible through, through those eyes. Eyes like Rachel Held Evans, right? Understanding that it's a, foreign, it's a foreign story. It's foreign to us. 
It's, it's written in a different time. It's an ancient story. And we want to wrestle thoughtfully uh, with what it can mean for our lives. So Abram and Sarah in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 12 are called by God to leave their homeland. Uh, they're from a, a city called Ur, which is in Babylon at that time, Mesopotamia. Now it's Iraq, the southern part of Iraq. And, and then their father, Abram's father, Terah, uh, takes them to Haran, which is in the northern part of what is now Iraq. And then that's where the story picks up. And God calls Abram and Sarah to leave Haran and journey to the land of Canaan, which is now Israel. I've got a map, I, I think, here on the, uh, on the computer. And we can see uh, their journey. So you see Ur and Babylon and then Haran up there in the upper corner. And that's where God calls them in Genesis chapter 12, as we read. And, and now they're going to journey around. They're going to make this arch uh, around this, uh, this desert where it says Abram, Abraham's journey to Canaan, that's all desert. It's uninhabitable. And so this area that they travel here, the yellow line, is what's called the Fertile Crescent. It's where plants can grow and where you can travel in the ancient world without dying, without you know, having to carry too much water with you, and it was impossible anyway. So Abraham, Abram and Sarai make this journey down to uh, this little sliver of land on the left next to the Mediterranean Sea. They were not the only people to make that journey. So when we read a scripture like this, it's, it's written as though Abram and Sarai, they're just kind of sitting around one day, and God's like, hey, hey, bruh. Hey, Abram, what's up, man? And, and there's just this casual, God speaks to him. He's like, yes, Lord. And, and there's this conversation go, going on, and it's, I don't know if you've experienced something like that. I haven't in my life. But we read these stories, and that kind of strikes us as odd. But these are, they're not the only people making that journey in the ancient world. It was actually a popular migration route. People tended to move in, in, this, in this way. Because that little sliver of land over here where it says Shechem and Bethel and Hebron, that's what is now Israel, that was the only place uh, where you could put a trade route. You have the, the desert here, you have the Mediterranean Sea here, and there's this little sliver of land where merchants can travel and goods, uh, goods can flow from these empires of, of Babylon and later Persia and then down here on the, off the left corner is Egypt. And so these empires traded with each other and these trade routes went through this land of Canaan where God calls uh, Sarah and Abram to travel to. And, and so whoever controls that land controls the economy of the ancient Middle East. And so the people who lived in this land have the story of just being conquered over and over and over again. It was the, the, the Egyptians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks came and then the Romans came uh, right before the New Testament in the time of Jesus uh, because they wanted to control this little sliver of land. And so Abram and Sarah were not alone in, in making this journey. Uh, they, they run into uh, several obstacles that are very difficult for them. One, there's a famine. Once they get to that, that land of Canaan, there's a famine, so they go down to Egypt so they can survive. They have financial hardship. They, they, God has called them, and they believe that they're following God, and they, they get there, and now the money's gone, so to speak. And, and they don't, you know, in our, in our day, it would be like, you know, my job fell through, and we got hit with this unexpected bill. And so now they have to travel down to Egypt to survive. And there's this episode where uh, they encounter Pharaoh. And um, Scripture says that Abram says to his wife, Sarai, you're beautiful. And, and they're going to take you as a slave. And so I, what I want you to do is tell them you're my sister so they won't kill me. Because if they know you're my I'm, I'm your husband, they're going to make you a slave and they're going to kill me. So just tell them you're my sister. Happy Women's Day, everybody. Right? I mean... So there's this, what is going on here? And is that something to emulate? And are these people heroes? And, and so she comes out of Pharaoh's household after being used and mistreated back to Abram. And so they go back to the promised land. And, and, and we encounter things like this. And we're like, what? I mean, is, is religion really for crazy people? Are, are the secularists right? You know, are people right who just want to chuck the whole thing and abandon it? You know, we're just reading things that we don't. Uh, we just don't, just don't get. This doesn't make sense in the 21st century, but this is the world that they lived in. And in Genesis 17, God says to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. You will, her name will be Sarah, which means princess. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. 
I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. So God promises them that they're going to have descendants. He changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many, and Sarai to Sarah, which means princess, and he promises them descendants. They're going to have descendants as numerous as the sky or the stars in the sky, as Jackie read. There's just one problem. They're not able to have kids. And they're, they're older folks by this time. Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah's 90. And they're not able to have kids. They struggle with infertility. And so another landmine that we can step on when we read a scripture like this, especially for people who struggle with infertility, and, and they maybe have prayed. They read stories like this, and they've prayed for God to provide a child. Or maybe they lost a child. They've miscarried. And, and they think, well, God, God did a miracle here. Why isn't God doing a miracle for me? Once again, we're, we're stepping into this ancient story that is difficult for us to make sense of. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that we gain from a passage like this uh, and these, are, these stories are called the stories of the patriarchs. So that's, that's the slightest hint that it's a patriarchal time. And we know from the ancient world that women were valued for their ability to give birth to children. And little else. Uh, they were viewed as second-class citizens in this time. As Rachel kind of poked fun of, they, they had to call their husbands master. And they were viewed as property of their fathers until they were transferred to their husbands. And, and it was, it's the kind of world that, that uh, Sarah lived in. And in the ancient world, when a woman is viewed for her ability to give birth and little else, when a woman cannot do that, and by the way, ladies, you won't be surprised to know, in the ancient world, when a couple struggled with infertility, it was always assumed it was the woman's fault, of course, right? And so it was viewed as something she can't do, and she couldn't fulfill her role that women were expected to fulfill, and so that was a great source of shame in her life. Women who struggled with infertility were shamed in the ancient world. Uh, there's, a, there's a story in, in Genesis. It finds its way in the Genesis, a common practice where there would be a mistress involved who could, who could have the kids. And imagine being you know, Sarah and having to deal with that kind of a situation. And, and so this is a source of shame for Sarah that she's not able, it's assumed, to have children. You remember last week when we talked about Adam and Eve and they see that they're naked and they're afraid, and so they hide from God. They're, of all the things that could be said about them, when they eat the fruit, they, their eyes are open and they see that they're naked. And, and they're afraid and they hide from God, and they feel shame because they're naked. What does God do? Is God like the, the, the religious leader who goes on CNN or Fox News and just acts like the moral police of society and heaps further shame onto them? Is that what God does? What does God do in Genesis when he sees that they're ashamed because they're naked? God gives them clothes. He makes clothes for them. And so we have all kinds of ideas about who God is, what God is like, and we have all kinds of people shouting, claiming to, to know God's will and to know who God is on cable news and in social media. And this is who we encounter in Scripture, somebody very different than, than, than you see shouting on cable news. So when they're naked and they feel ashamed, what does God do? He gives them clothes. When Sarah is ashamed, because it's assumed that it's her fault and that they can't have kids, what does God do? He gives them a child. They have a son named Isaac. God promises their son Isaac to them. They don't believe it at first. It's hard for them to believe it. They do believe it, but it's hard for them to believe it, and that's, that's faith. They, they trust God's promise. And so God takes away the source of her shame. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is always going to work a miracle for us the same way that God works miracles in Scripture. Once again, we're stepping into an ancient story, a foreign world, and the assumptions are different. As we've said in, in weeks, uh, weeks past, when you see a miracle in the Bible, the point, of the, of, uh, the point is never the actual miracle, what actually happens. The point is what it means. And in the ancient world, the meaning of this miracle was Sarah carried shame because she couldn't have this child. And so what does God do? He removes her shame. The meaning of the miracle is we have a God presented in Genesis 
who removes people's shame. And so uh, those of you who have known me for a while know that my grandma was a, a huge influence in my life. I lived with my, my grandparents and my mom until I was six years old. And I was born out of wedlock. I met my dad twice in my life. And um, uh, my grandparents uh, were amazing uh, figures in my life, and especially my grandma. My grandma uh, decided she wanted to follow Jesus in, in the late 60s at a revival meeting in a, in a Methodist church in southern Ohio, in Appalachia, where, where she lived her whole life. And she became what's called a licensed lay speaker in the Methodist church, which meant when the pastor was gone, she would give the sermon. And she, all, she taught Bible study classes, you know, probably every other week with her friend Ruth. They would, they would rotate and, and trade off. And I went to church with her, and I was always proud of my grandma because I would see her up here taking a leadership role and, and, and teaching people. And I had a couple of uncles who were a part of a Baptist tradition who believed that women should not be preachers, that women should be silent in church like Rachel's book alludes to. And, and, and they would give her a hard time. Because she gave sermons, she taught Bible studies. And I remember her telling me one time when I was just a little kid, I don't remember how old I was, but I was, uh, I was standing next to her watching her. She was probably in the kitchen. You know, she, that's where she spent a lot of time. She loved to cook. And she told me the story, how she wrestled for years and years and years with their criticism. That women shouldn't speak in church and, and women shouldn't lead men. Because, and, and where did she get that? She got it from the Bible. And once again, we're stepping into a foreign world that requires thoughtfulness and interpretation when we read scripture. And she told me she got to this place. And this is her language, and this is mysterious, and not everybody would experience this. And this is a place where we say you can express your faith and your doubts here, but this is what she told me. She said she got to the place where she felt God impress upon her heart one time. that You represent me. And you don't have to be concerned about the criticism of, of a guy who's thumping his Bible and, and, and he believes that he, you know, he's got the inerrant interpretation of the scripture and, and you don't have to listen to that voice. You represent me. And she said from that time on, she didn't really doubt that she was called anymore. And nobody who ever heard her teach would have doubted that in the first place. And she was gifted. But I remember uh, it wasn't just in church that she was an example for me because I lived with her. She must have told me, and this is probably, I'm four or five years old. She must have told me a hundred times to not throw a ball in the house. Please, Ryan, please don't throw the ball in the house. And what did I do? Of course, I'm always like throwing a ball in the house. And um, I just, I remember her telling me that so many times. And, and, and one day, um, she had these little bird figurines that were on a shelf in her living room. And I remember that she really liked these little bird figurines. They were like hand-painted and these decorations that she just really, really liked. And I threw the ball up in the air, and you know how this works. It's in slow motion when this happens. You see the ball slow, you know, flying through the air in slow motion, heading straight for the bird figurines. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, no. And my voice is like super deep in slow motion as I yell, oh, no. And the ball hits the figurines, and it knocks them off the shelf. The shelf was probably you know, six feet in the air. I thought it was, you know, where the ceiling is, you know, when I was a little kid, but it just seemed like forever that it took those little bird figurines to fall to the ground and they hit the floor and like a head broke off of one of them. It was like dumb and dumber, like pretty bird, pretty bird, like the pieces are laying around. And I said, oh no, I know how much she loves these. And she's told me so many times not to throw the ball in the house and look what I just did. And I was, I was filled with shame because I knew that my grandma loved me and she took good care of me. And she was always gracious and nice to me and, and uh, always nicer than I felt like I deserved. And I'm sure she heard the birds hit the floor. Um, and I think I went in and actually told her, which I can't believe I did that, but I think I did. Grandma, I broke your birds. And she walked into the, in the living room and she saw these birds, you know, in pieces laying on the, on the floor. And she, think about all the, you know, the anger we feel if our kids do something or grandkids do something we told them not to do. And all the things she could have said to me that it would have been looped in my mind 
for years and years and years, this grandma I love and I value and I look up to her so much. Think about the power of her words and what she could have said and how that would have affected me. And she turned around to me and she said to me, I love you more than birds. Now, any other time, if somebody said, I love you more than birds, you'd be like, okay, that's nice. It's nice of you to say. In that moment, it meant more than the world to me. It meant the universe to me. That my grandma that I love so much and looked up to so much turned around and she let me know, even though I didn't listen to her, I was more valuable to her than these bird figurines. That's grace. Do you feel that? That's grace, that's compassion, that's goodness. And that's the kind of God that we read about in Genesis. Not the guy yelling who's the so-called religious leader on cable news. That's the God we read about in Genesis. A God of grace and goodness who sees when people are naked and he gives them clothes. Who sees when, some, when a woman in that time feels a sense of shame. And what does he do? He takes away the source of her shame. The point of these stories in Genesis is to teach us and maybe to reteach us who God is, that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is gracious, that God is compassionate. It may not seem like that at first glance when we read these stories that are foreign to us, ancient stories written in a different time, a different place, in a galaxy long ago, far away. It doesn't seem like God is, but that's in the meaning of these stories in their original and their original meaning, that's what it means. God is a God of goodness and grace. Last week after the service, somebody uh, came up to me, a, a lady uh, who was obviously a very thoughtful person. And she asked me a great question. First of all, she said, you know, I noticed when God closed them, God closed them with animal skins. Adam and Eve, we talked about last week, when he closed them, he closed them, closed them with animal skins. And she said, I'm a big animal rights supporter. And so that's hard for me to read. And she says, I know they sacrificed animals. I know you're right. I mean, this, these are ancient stories. It's absolutely right. And we are beginning to see animals in a different light. We're in kind of a transitory period in the developed world right now. It just kind of seems, it seems that way, doesn't it? And she said, but there's also this story in Genesis because she knows Genesis. There's, she, there's a story where God tells Abraham, when, he, when, he, when he's promised the son Isaac and they have their son Isaac, God tells Abraham to do the unthinkable with this son Isaac that they've had. We don't know how old Isaac is in this story, but God tells him to do the unthinkable. It's not on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. It's from Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, which is a mountain. Sacrifice him there. As a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. And so we've just talked about how God is gracious and good and compassionate in Genesis. And then we read that. And then again, some of you are like, maybe religion is crazy. Maybe we really should walk away and chuck the whole thing. And maybe we're better off without it. This is one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, if not the most disturbing. I mean, there are a few that give it some competition, but th this, is, this is up there. What do we do with this? Abraham takes his son to the mountain. He places the wood for the fire on Isaac. So Isaac's old enough that he can carry the wood, I guess. And so Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. Abram, Abraham carries the knife, and they go to the top of this, of this mountain Isaac's old enough to talk, and he says, we have the fire and the wood for the offering, but where is the lamb? So they sacrifice animals at this time. Isaac's like, wait a second, Dad, I see the fire, I see the knife. Where is the sacrifice here? And we're just ratcheting up the tension, the unthinkable in this story. And here's how Genesis uh, presents this. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife 
to slay his son. That's in the Bible. Verse 11. I mean, when, when, when people say religion is crazy, you got, you got to at least admit they might have a point. Do you feel the tension? The Bible says this. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. To this day. So this story was written down in a time that is in the future after this event is said to have happened. All right, but we have the story that at best, at best by 21st century standards is divine child abuse. At best, divinely sanctioned child abuse. God commands somebody to kill their son. It's absolutely unthinkable. You would never, ever, ever want to take the Bible literally when it says something like this. And again, it's a reminder to us, like Rachel Held Evans so beautifully illustrated. It's an ancient story, and we're stepping into a different world so quickly. When we look at a story like this, we are uh, people who live in the 21st century developed world. It's not just America. It's, it's, uh, it's Europe, other parts of the world where the, the enlightenment has taken hold. And, and we, we see the world differently. So I think I have a, a graph here. There's a, there's a line with an arrow in, the, in the, middle of the, uh, the middle of the slide. And so we're living in the 21st century here in the present. And we are reading literature that was written in the ancient world. Um, perhaps 2,000 years ago. Uh, we're not sure, 1,500 years ago. Uh, whatever this story is based on that we have in its written form, whatever it's based on, maybe 3,000 years ago. And so we're reading about something that's happening in the ancient world. And here's what we know about the time that Abraham and Sarah would have lived in. And we know also about the time that the scripture was written in, uh, that child sacrifice was common. We know that about the ancient world. Uh, there's uh, a mention in the Bible, actually, of children being sacrificed to the god Molech and Canaan. And just, we're, we're wrestling with the text, right? And, and so we're, we're, we're committed to being thinking people who aren't shying away from issues like this. So this is what this, is what this looked like in, in the culture that Abraham and Sarah lived in. There, was, there would be a statue of Molech with his arms outstretched. And then in the belly of the statue, a fire would be lit. And whatever sacrificial child is chosen the child would be placed on the arms of Molech and then the child would either die there from the heat or the child, dear God, would roll down the arms into the fire. This was common in the ancient world, in this particular area. We also know the Aztecs and the Incas uh, sacrificed children. The, the Druids in Europe practiced child sacrifice. What could possibly possess a human being? Here we are on Mother's Day and Women's Day. How could, how could a human possibly choose to do that to the thing they value most in this life? And I would suggest that it was fear and blind faith and the same kind of thinking that we see today where a person chooses to believe that, well, I just, I just read it and do whatever it says and I'm absolutely 100% certain about it and I have no doubts and no questions and, and, and I, just, I just do whatever God or the gods tell me to do. And that's the way that, I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with that would cause a person to do that. And the fear behind this is 
These folks don't understand weather. They don't have weather satellites. They don't know what brings rain. They do know if the rain doesn't come, their crops don't grow, and the rest of their kids starve to death. They do know that. They've experienced that. And maybe they have 10 kids in the family, 20 kids in the family at this time in history. And they, by, by the twisted thinking of some religious leader, and this happened in various parts of the world, so it wasn't just one isolated idea. Somebody said, you know what? We have to fear the gods because it's the gods who control the weather. And if we please the gods, then they'll send rain and the rest of our kids can live. But if, if we don't please the gods, if we do something that ticks them off, if we don't live the way we're supposed to, if we don't show our faithfulness and how good of followers we are, then the gods will be angry at us and they won't send rain and all of our children will die. So what can we do to express to this God, the God of rain, that we are faithful and dedicated people? It's the ultimate sacrifice. Out of fear and irrational blind faith. Now, if you found this practice absolutely repugnant, and as the scripture actually says, detestable, and you wanted to write a story that was persuasive, that persuaded the people where you live who practice this religion and they they sacrifice their children to persuade them that this is terrible and this is something that should never be done, what kind of story would you write to persuade them? I would suggest you would write this one. You would write a story about a guy who was ready to do it. He was so faithful to God and he believed so much, he had the knife up in the air. Because if you're trying to persuade them not to sacrifice their children, see, they think they're good religious people. They think they're obeying the gods. And so they could raise the objection, well, if you don't sacrifice your child, you just don't have enough faith. Anybody ever heard that before? You just don't have enough faith. You're not the right kind of Christian. You don't have the right view of the Bible. You just don't have enough faith. People are people. Humans then were the same as they are now. And they could say, well, you just don't have enough faith. And you'd be like, no, man, this guy, this guy tied his kid up. He had the knife in the air. He was ready to do it. And so they see, oh, he had faith. But what's different? What's different is God. Whereas they believe their storm gods, the storm god Baal, uh, and what would now be Lebanon, was, was worshipped in this area as well as Molech. Children were sacrificed to Baal. See, they believe that their God is capricious, is hard to please, and demands something from them that no human should ever have to give. That's what they believed about their God. But this story says, no, this God was like, Abraham, don't do it. Stop. This is, this is not what I want. That's not the kind of God that we're talking about here. And so we read the Bible from the 21st century backwards. And we see what seems like this horrific story, and it is, that God is testing them and God is commanding this. But in its time, it was a massive leap forward. Like the, the first steps on the moon, one, one small step for man, one, one giant leap for humankind. This was a, a massive progression that what is common in your world is detestable to God. That's not who God is. God is a God of goodness and graciousness, and we would never, ever want to do anything like that to our children. And so in its time, the scripture, many times, often, most of the time, is actually progressive. Does that make sense? Looking back, we see something different. We're on the other side of the scripture from, from these cultures. Now, it doesn't mean that, okay, well, that's just, okay, sweet. That answers all the questions. It doesn't, it doesn't answer all the questions. But it does mean that the Bible was often progressive. Now, here's what happens as we are in this, this series on Genesis. And we want to wrestle with the scripture as thoughtful people. There are lots of people now in 21st century America who believe that they just read the Bible and then they do it. And anything they, anything they want to take literally, they can. It's often selective literalism. Gluttony, no. But they'll point out the sins of other people. And so what happens is 
they look backwards at a, at a book that was progressive for its time or a collection of books that was progressive for its time. And then they read things like a woman calling her husband master or people you know, being tested by God and to see whether they really have faith or not or they, an ancient view of women as second-class citizens, an ancient view of the cosmos that we've talked about that's presented in the Bible, an ancient view of divine punishment, what God is like, an ancient view of God being tribalistic and a warrior God, like the gods were at that time, uh, Middle Eastern views of people who are gay, Middle Eastern views of uh, people who believe things that are different about religion or in general. And then they, they believe that those, those values are God's all-time will. And so, and so instead of interpreting the Bible in the light of its context and realizing, oh, the Bible was a, was a huge step forward in its context, they look back without considering its context. They just read the, the words on the page and say, let's do that. And they find themselves enshrining forever ancient Middle Eastern social customs and ancient Middle Eastern ways of viewing certain people in society and ancient Middle Eastern views of the world and science. Does that make sense? And they enshrine what they read forever because they have not interpreted the Bible in the light of its historical context. Some person has said, the text, the text of the Bible, without context equals proof text. The text minus context equals proof text. A proof text is you just take a verse and you make it say whatever you want. You can read into it, you can choose to believe something, or you can choose to bash other people over the head with that verse because you think you know what it means. Because you haven't considered that verse in the light of its historical context. Had you considered it, you would have seen, wow, this is a massive leap forward. In the ancient world, what the, what the scripture says about that issue or what it says about these people, what it says about infertility or Sarah, so, oh, that was a ma- major move forward. God's taking away her shame. Now you would read back and say like, well, I guess God causes infertility. No, that's, that's an ancient Middle Eastern view that does not express God's eternal will. We're left with that when we divorce the Bible from its cultural context. The most popular Instagram post we've ever made, we run a lot of ads for this church, the most popular Instagram post we ever made said this, if God gave you a brain, then it's okay to use it in church. The most popular ad we ever, we ever ran, it was over like 200 likes. You know, we're just a, a new little church. The most popular post we ever made. When it comes to the Bible, the Bible was ahead of its time. But people who forget that or, or, or choose to not interpret it in the light of its time, they say th- some things that are hard for thinking people to grasp and, and, or to adhere to. And then we're left thinking, is that what God is like? Is that what religion is like? Well, if, if so, no thanks. But if God gave you a brain, then it's okay to use it in church. Here we are on Mother's Day and Women's Day, the second most popular Instagram post we ever made was raise your children in a church that won't cause them to have a crisis of faith when they grow up. Because, let's just be honest, we're new, we're small. There, there are churches down the road of 5,000 people, and they're taught a view of Genesis that is very different from the one that we're talking about in this series. A view of women, a view of other people, it's very different. And those kids are going to get to be about 16, 17, 18, the kids growing up in those churches, and they're going to start asking some questions. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so they're going to enter into this crisis of faith where they're trying to make sense of their faith in in a world uh, that is different than the ancient world, the 21st century developed world. And and their churches are not equipping them to see that spectrum and and to interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context. So as, as we think about our kids, you know, Hannah and I, we want to raise our kids in a church where, you know, at four years old, they're not going to be dealing with this stuff. But at 14, they are. You can make Noah's Ark cute when they're four. But at 14, that starts to look a lot different. And so we want to raise our kids, the ultimate blessing, our children. We would never hurt them. We would never harm them. We want to raise them in an environment where they can think and love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and not have 
a crisis of faith when they, when they grow up. And I want to close today by reading a couple of passages from Rachel's book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And like I said before, Rachel was able to um, interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context, to think deeply about it. She, she was an example of that and an influence on so many people. But it didn't mean that she was criticizing it or devaluing it. She loved the Bible, and she loved church. She remained a churchgoer and somebody who read the Bible until the end. I want to read just a couple of passages as we close. She said, I figured I'd be so sick of the Bible after this project was over. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it. I figured I'd be so sick of the Bible after this project was over that I'd have to take a break and start reading the Bhagavad Gita for a while. But somewhere between the rooftop and the red tent, I'd learn to love the Bible again for what it is, not what I want it to be. The Bible isn't an answer book. It isn't a self-help manual. It isn't a flat, perspicuous, what a word, perspicuous list of rules and regulations that we can interpret objectively and apply unilaterally to our lives. The Bible is a sacred collection of letters and laws, poetry and proverbs, philosophy and prophecies, written and assembled over thousands of years in cultures and contexts very different from our own, that tells the complex, ever-unfolding story of God's interaction with humanity. So after 12 months of quote-unquote biblical womanhood, I'd arrived at the rather unconventional conclusion that there is no such thing. The Bible does not present us with a single model for womanhood, and the notion that it contains a sort of one-size-fits-all formula for how a woman of faith, uh, how to be a woman of faith, is a myth. She says, if you're looking for Bible verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to liberate and honor women, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, you'll find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you'll find them. If you are looking for an outdated and irrelevant ancient text, you'll find it. And then finally, she says, if you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. I invite you to pray with me.